Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, some big changes may be coming to Ottawa's controversial Bill C-69. We spoke with two Alberta senators. Also, a closer look at the province's new blue ribbon panel and the need for a deep dive into the state of the government's finances. Plus, a new report on Canada's money laundering problem finds we've got an enormous amount of work to do. Like a lot of Albertans have been watching this very closely, where things go with C-69. It is, of course, uh, before the Senate. Senate committee has been uh, hearing testimony uh, and proposed changes, considering changes to C-69, the legislation that would overhaul the approval process for not just energy infrastructure, but other major infrastructure projects in this country. A lot of concern that maybe we're setting the bar too high, that we're creating a lot of uncertainty an uncertainty that could make it a lot more difficult to get pipelines built in the future. So it's something I think Albertans are really concerned about. The government insists that C-69 is fine as it is. There's an opportunity, though, for the Senate to step in and, and overhaul this legislation. It appears as though that is what is going to happen today. A number of amendments are going to officially be tabled today for Bill C-69, potentially setting up a showdown with the government. Joining us uh, for some thoughts on where things go from here, very pleased to welcome to the program, Alberta Senator Doug Black. Senator, thank you for joining us. Well, welcome to the program. Always good to be on your show, and it's lovely to talk with you and your listeners again. Well, we appreciate you making some time for us today. It's shaping up to be an interesting oh, day. Oh, it's an interesting day. You bet it is. Uh, so, where, where do things stand? Well, as you know, this bill, as your introduction said, basically is a bill that the government believes will assist project development in this country, and as I've been saying across this country for eight or nine months, and now hundreds of other people are saying, this is a bill that will stop projects developed in this country, full stop. So we have to amend this bill. So we've been working extremely hard over the last number of months to try and clean the bill up, and what will happen today is literally 150, 200 amendments will be tabled with a view to making the bill clearer so that investment can return to this country and projects can be developed. If we do not have amendment package that achieves that end, as I've said all along, let's put it in the shredder and start again. So you're prepared to go that path? If, if need Absolutely. be. Yeah. Oh, abs- look, this is about the Canadian economy, the Alberta economy, of course, mm-hmm. but the Canadian economy. And, you know, my job as an elected Alberta senator is to make sure that our interests are protected. And that's why I've been blowing the whistle for so long on this one, because this, well, you've heard people say they're calling it the no pipelines bill. Yeah. And they're calling it that for a reason, Rob. Well, and, and we've been following this debate, and certainly you've been very outspoken uh, on the Senate floor and, and elsewhere on, on how flawed, how badly the government has missed the mark on C-69. Uh, so, in, given all of that, do you, do you think that amending the bill can be sufficient? I, I've been working, obviously, very closely with industry and the uh, Indian Resource Council, the government of Alberta, Canada West, and these are people <clears throat> who are very close to the ground particularly SEPA and CAP, because they're the folks that build projects. They are telling me that if the package of amendments that they have put forward are accepted, 
that they believe they have a reasonable opportunity of getting back to business. So that's good enough for me. But the moment there's any suggestion that this bill will hamper our ability to build pipelines and the projects that Alberta needs, I am absolutely about ensuring it does not advance. But I'm only one vote. Mm-hmm. What concerns you most about C-69? There's no certainty. If you're a pipeline, let's take pipelines for an example, but this could be an airport or an electricity line or a port improvement or a potash mine. It could be anything in the natural resource sector. But we'll say I'm a pipeline. I'm going to look at that and I'm going to say, okay, you expect me to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to figure out how we build the pipeline, to consult, to do all that needs to be done, then government of Alberta or government of Canada, the Minister of the Environment alone will decide if this project proceeds? Well, there, you, you can't do that. There is no certainty. There is nobody in the world will advance a project. You have to know up front that if you propose a project that meets certain hurdles and conditions, that the government of Canada will approve the project. So they've got it all back to front. They've, yeah. they've got it all back to front. But as I say, Rob, there's over 100 amendments being proposed. This, this bill is an embarrassment to the government that they would actually get a bill through the House of Commons and then send it to the Senate that is such a dog's breakfast is negligent. Having said that, our job, we provide sober second thought, although I'm starting to wonder about the sober part. (laughs) But, uh, you know, that's our job, and we're doing our job to try and clean up this mess. If we can, great. Mm -hmm. There was a a report out this month from the the Canada West Foundation pointing to another potential uh, issue that C-69 creates because we are changing the process so dramatically that all of the the court rulings we've had, the jurisprudence, right, the, the certainty we've had, but that's all kind of thrown out the window now. We're kind of back to square one. And on top of the regulatory delays, we're creating a lot of legal uncertainty. And that could lead to lengthy delays in the courts. Is, is that a concern that you share? Yes, that is absolutely a concern I share. Uh, that because we're creating a new process, we are throwing the NEB in the wash basket, uh, that it's all new, that's going to give people who are interested in opposing projects an opportunity. What we're trying to deal with, to deal with that, is the, uh, what we call prohibitive clauses, which limit the ability to take matters to court, except in certain circumstances, point one. So just because you don't like the color of my eyes doesn't mean you can take me to court. So we're trying to build in provisions that limit when you have access to the courts, point one. And point two, we are endeavoring to suggest that you don't go to the first level of court, which would be the trial division, but you go automatically to the federal court of appeal, which cuts out years, literally years of time, and a whole level of courts. So that's what we're endeavoring to do to try and meet that very legitimate concern of Canada West. Does it go far enough? Likely not, but we think it's it's likely a fair compromise on that point. So these are some pretty substantial amendments being proposed today and it's going to take some time to go through all of them. Um, you know, we get a federal election happening later this year. I mean, what's, what's your sense of the, the timeline here and, and what might happen between now and October? Well, Rob, there is very much. I have the view, and I think my colleagues have the view, certainly 
industry has told me. They said, look, we've labored under uncertainty for way too long. If you can come up with a package that gives back to investors and back to industry certainty that we can move forward, we've got to have it. So I'm very, very keen that we move this matter forward as quickly as possible. And over the next two or three weeks, maybe four weeks, we know whether we have been able to craft a bill that gets through the Senate and gets through the House of Commons. And look, I'm an optimist. I think in Alberta we are optimists. I hope that it works because then industry can get back to work. But if it doesn't, it's better to have no bill than a flawed bill. Uh, and by the way, and just before we let you go, on a, on a related piece of legislation, there's a lot of concern around C-48, which is also before the Senate. Uh, this is the, the West Coast uh, shipping ban, uh, tanker ban that the government wants to, to bring in. Where, where do things stand with C-48? It, it, it pretty much in the same position. As your listeners know, this is... This is a terrible bill as well that is aimed directly at Alberta, saying that we basically cannot build pipelines from Fort McMurray to the northern coast of B.C. because they want to impose a tanker ban. And I suspect, as most of your listeners know by now, this would be the only oil tanker ban in the world. In the world. Mm -hmm. It's an outrageous and discriminatory attack on our province. This bill has to die. This bill has to die. It either has to fall off the order paper or we have to defeat it. There is no way to amend this. There is no way that this can be amended because we cannot allow uh, a tanker ban when we have such sophisticated technology, double-hulled ships, uh, very sophisticated GPS and tugging systems where oil is moved around the world every day in the millions of barrels on the high seas without incident that we somehow are going to close down the north coast of B.C. so as we can further restrict the oil sands is an outrage, is an outrageous piece of legislation from a government that should simply know better. No government attacks its own economic viability other than it would appear this government. All right. Well, I'll direct people to DougBlack.ca for much more on, on all of these issues. Senator, thank you so much for joining us here this Listen, afternoon. Rob, and thank you for your interest. All right. All the best. Okay, we'll talk ya. again soon. Uh, Alberta Senator Doug Black, his thoughts on uh, where things stand on a couple of pieces of legislation, but notably C-69. We're going to see this package of amendments tabled today. So some pretty significant amendments coming to Bill C-69. They're going to be debated and, and voted on by the Senate. And at some point, a revised C-69 could go back to the House of Commons, setting up a showdown with the government that believe C-69, as it's written, is just fine. So kudos to the Senate and to this committee in particular for taking the time to really study this bill and for being willing to uh, entertain the idea of reaching out to more Canadians and actually getting some, some consultation, some feedback, some input on this bill and where perhaps it can be improved. Now, someone who just kind of jumped in in the middle of all of this, uh, still a relatively uh, new senator, Alberta Independent Senator Paula Simons, is uh, on the line with us here this afternoon. Stepped away from the chamber to chat with us a bit about all of this. Paula, thank you for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. I'm very always happy to be on your show, Rob Breckenridge, and to bring you this little scoop. Well, yes, and, and this is a scoop because we are now learning that, uh, indeed, these amendments, now they are being tabled as we speak, correct? Well, we will begin the clause-by-clause -clause analysis of the bill at 
5 p.m. Ottawa time, so 3 p.m. Calgary time, at which point uh, we will bring forward our amendments. The Conservative members of the uh, committee will bring forward their amendments. And it's going to be a little bit like, you know, two little boys in the playground. Uh, Whose is is bigger? Whose is better? Um, I happen to think our package of amendments is extremely strong. There are certain ones that I'm going to be championing that speak directly to issues in Alberta. And uh, I am very proud of the work that our committee has done and very proud of the work that the the Independent Senate group in particular has, has poured into this effort. Yeah. You know, as I say, I mean, you, you, you were appointed to the Senate right in the midst of all of this. And, and you know, from the moment that the, the ink dried on the news release uh, announcing your appointment, you, you were getting besieged with questions about C-69. What are you going to do about C-69? What is your position on C-69? Are you going to stop C-69? So this has really kind of dominated in a lot of ways your time in the Senate so far, hasn't it? it? It has indeed. And I have to say that I'm really pleased at the way the debate has evolved, because when I was appointed back in October... Everybody was really saying, kill the bill. Mm -hmm. And now we've got to the point where we have everybody from the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers to Alberta's new Premier Jason Kenney uh, having a slightly more nuanced point of view. I mean, indeed, when Premier Kenney spoke to our committee last Thursday, he didn't say kill the bill. He said, in fact, he supported the amendments brought forward by Rachel Notley. Uh, which was very interesting. Mm -hmm. And indeed, some of those amendments, which were originally uh, presented to us by Alberta's previous premier, have found their way into our our proposed amendments for the bill. I don't know that it will answer all of of, uh, Premier Kenny's concerns, but I think it will address a great many of them. As you've been listening to all of this and studying the bill and and hearing the case for these amendments, what, what stands out to you as most needed? Well, I have to say we were blessed. It's an odd thing for me as an agnostic to say. Mm-hmm. We were we were gifted with the most amazing colleague, Howard Weston, who is a senator from Ontario, a former federal court judge, former head of the Ontario Securities Commission, and before that, a longtime regulator with the National Energy Board, uh, and knows regulatory law inside out and backwards. He's written it. And so we tapped into his enormous fund of knowledge to help us synthesize these amendments. And he had a number of really quite genius brainwaves. One of the things that has really been worrying people about the bill is the great amount of discretion it gave to the minister, not just to make a final decision, but to stop the clock all the way along in the planning phase for all kinds of reasons. Not So that was concerned, not just that it extended timelines and could have taken a project forever, but that there could be political interference at so many points. And Senator Weston just like cut through the underbrush and said, here's our proposed amendment. We're going to suggest that instead of giving that power to the minister, that that power belong to the regulator, the objective arm's length regulator who's actually doing the work, and that they have to provide reasons anytime they stop the clock. So, I mean, this is brilliant. It, 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 in order for me to make these amendments, I'm going to have to amend the bill, I don't know, in about 12 different places. Um, but it basically stops the minister of the day, whether liberal or conservative, from being able to mix their fingers in the mud pie and, you know, and backseat drive and micromanage the environmental assessment. I mean, that was always madness. Wherever you are on the political spectrum, this is not something a minister should be doing. And instead of, you know, so he just looked at this and with his giant genius brain said, okay, we can like go through the bill 
And every time it says the minister can do this, the minister can do that, we'll, we'll make it not say that. And then he's, he's put in suggestions that really protect the independence of the chair of the review panel. And then lots of like really good housekeeping things. For example, an amendment which would grandfather in TMX to ensure that TMX wouldn't have to start all over again with this new regulatory regime that it would still be grandfathered under the old one. I mean, that, that's a very common sense provision which isn't in the existing bill. Uh, you know, so he's just come up with all of these kinds of very sensible workarounds, and then you look at them and you think, well, why wasn't the bill written like that in the first place? Because that makes so much sense. And, you know, and then there are certain things that uh, Senator uh, Patty Labican benson and I, who are both on the committee, both from Alberta, you know, that we'd really been asking for and championing. And so we had a lot of input in into these amendments, and uh, so they're very much a collective creation. All right. So the, um, the, the schoolhouse rock portion of this interview, Paula, the, the civics <laughs> lesson... <laughs> Let's talk about what happens. This um, bill is is before this committee. The committee is going to propose these amendments, so the committee will vote before it goes to the entire Senate? The committee will vote. And this is going to be interesting because we're pretty evenly split in that committee. And it's a challenge because uh, a tie goes to the loser, if you know what I mean. Okay. Uh, uh, So... We could get ourselves into the ironic position of we vote down their amendments, they vote down our amendments, and then there are no amendments, which would be really childish and silly, but not beyond the pale of what might happen. Uh, So I'm hopeful that we'll look at each other's amendments and go, oh, okay, well, this is basically the same thing. One of them puts it a little more elegantly. Let's, let's, you know, let's pick, you pick ours, we'll pick yours, and then, you know, we can go through through the package like that. And with luck, we'll have a package of amendments that the whole committee agrees on, and we take it back to the chamber. If that doesn't happen, a bill can still be amended in the chamber at third reading. Uh, That's not my preference, because it's a lot of amending. It would make much more sense to do this in committee. But if it doesn't quite work at committee, we will have the chance to do it again in in the chamber. I think one of the other strengths of... Uh, the independent senators group package is that we have been working very closely with industry and also very closely with government and so and with environmental groups and with the mining association and so the idea is we've got a package of amendments that we think is palatable uh when minister mckenna the federal environment minister testified before us last week she said very frankly that they are open to amendments you know i know what you said off the top the government thinks the bill is just fine i think the government has actually come to realize that the bill is not just fine, and I want to give credit to uh, Natural Resources Minister Amarjeet Sohi. I don't always think he gets the credit he deserves. I mean, he's such a decent, soft-spoken guy. He doesn't, you know, bluster like some politicians do. But I think as Natural Resources Minister, he understood the flaws in the bill, and I think he's been working quietly and effectively kind of, you know, within his own caucus to get them to see that amendments have to be made. So, um... Getting amendments passed the committee, getting those amendments passed by the Senate, sending it back to the House, getting those approved there, it, it seems like an uphill battle, but you think it's its possible. Well, it's an uphill battle. <laughs> I'm from Edmonton. We've got a river valley. I mean, That's you true. know, you're from Calgary. Yeah, you know, Calgary's pretty flat, but you can see hills <laughs> from there. Yes. I mean, we're Albertans. We can go uphill. That is true. All right. Well, this is going to be interesting now going forward here. Senator Paula Simons, thank you for joining us here this afternoon. Much appreciate it.
Bye-bye. All right, take care. Alberta Senator Paula Simons, uh, her thoughts on these amendments and where this all goes from here. With their help, we will deliver on our commitment to Albertans to balance the budget by 2022-23 without raising taxes and to begin reducing our province's debt. All right, so that Premier Jason Kenney today announcing this blue ribbon panel that's going to assess Alberta's finances. What's interesting, though, is that, you know, certainly during the campaign, the Conservatives did lay out a plan to balance the budget by 2022-23, which, which seemed more or less pretty credible. So on, on, on that question, I'm, I'm curious what kind of input they're looking for. Now, the mandate letter, which was released, the terms of reference for the panel are uh, set out as follows. Develop and provide an assessment of the government's Alberta's business-as-usual fiscal outlook for the current fiscal year and future fiscal years. Develop and provide an assessment of alternative scenarios for the government's fiscal outlook to establish a clear understanding of the risks associated with the business-as-usual outlook between this fiscal year, 2019-2020, or the upcoming fiscal year in 2022-23. Develop and provide an assessment of the material economic forecast assumptions. Provide advice to the government on plans to balance the budget. Provide an assessment by department and agency of program expenditure trends and cost drivers. Provide advice and recommendations on a new fiscal framework. Analyze the business investment and climate. It's an impact on the Alberta economy. Examine current processes and systems used in government for preparing, um, approving, and monitoring progress on the capital plan, and to provide advice on any other matter the panel deems irrelevant. So he's come up with a pretty good list of names uh, to, to take on this task, and, and perhaps it is an ideal time to just take a look at how the Alberta government does business. Joining us uh, for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program, Ron Ebone. He is Director of Economic uh, Social Policy and Research at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Professor Nebo, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rod. Well, a couple of your colleagues from the uh, School of Public Policy, mm-hmm. Bev Dalby and, of course, Janice McKinnon, included in this announcement today. So I, I can imagine what your answer is to the question, though, but what do you make of, of the panel? Oh, these are awful choices. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I cannot think of anyone um, better for this duty than Bev Dalby, uh, if you're looking for a representative from the economics profession. Bev is well known as being nonpartisan, careful, and thorough in all of his analysis. He's a great choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Janice McKenna is also a really good choice. I mean, tons of experience. She's, she's actually uh, done what um, Premier Kenny's asking, which is to try to help Alberta move out of its fiscal deficit to balance. She's already done it with Saskatchewan, so her experience will be great, too. Yeah, I think so. And what's interesting, too, and of course, she was a former New Democrat Minister of Finance, but they had a tough job to do with the time in, in Saskatchewan, and I think a lot of that's relevant to, to Alberta. So uh, we, we've got some, some good people doing this job. Does it seem clear to you, Ron, what, what they're being asked to do? I think they're being asked to add credibility to the UCP platform, as you mentioned in your opening. Um, the UCP put out a platform that said many of these things, but now I think they're looking for uh, outsiders, nonpartisan, a nonpartisan group to to also give advice. I suspect it's going to be similar in that they're going to be emphasizing uh, spending constraint, restraints uh, in order to reach the balance 
budget by 2223 uh, without raising new taxes. So uh, I think we know what we're going to hear. Now, the details will be interesting because it's one thing to say we want to control spending, but now the question is, well, how and in, in, in what ministry? Mm-hmm. Uh, Health care is 40 to 45% of all provincial spending, so this is going to be a big target. It has to be. And, of course, that's a third rail kind of issue. What do you do about health care? And it'll be interesting to see what they say. Well, and, you know, I mean, that's the thing. I guess, you know, if you're going to ask some, some esteemed economists to come in and, and take a look at these questions, they're, they're not going to approach it as politicians. So some of these findings might not be politically palatable, maybe. Yeah, it's always dangerous for a government to do this because you ask a bunch of economists to give you an answer they might come back and bite you because... They're looking at it different than you are. They're, uh, they're not going to be uh, very sensitive. Well, they're not going to be sensitive at all to the politics of it. So they're just going to give you the straight goods. And you have to be willing as a politician once you appoint these panels just to take what they say and um, take the abuse that might come along with it. Mm-hmm. Well, but in your view, do, do we need uh, an examination of Alberta's finances? Do, do we have some structural problems, do you think? We need to finally do what we've been talking about, and this will be the big thing I'm looking for from this panel, is how do we get off our reliance on oil and gas royalties? Um, I mean, I think it's interesting the panel's been given a mandate to give recommendations on how to balance the budget by 22-23, but I'm not sure exactly how you're going to be able to do that when you cannot possibly predict what oil and gas royalties are going to be. And so, and since that's a big, uh, a significant part of your budget, it's really going to be hard to answer the question, how much do I need to moderate spending increases in order to balance the budget, when one of the big elements of that answer is something you can't predict. You can't predict what oil and gas royalties are going to be. So it's going to be tough. Well, it is. So, I mean, you know, you've talked about this as well. I mean, the, you know, getting off of that roller coaster and, and what does that look like? It doesn't appear as though that's really going to be a focus of this panel. Well, it's, it will in a sense in that I think any realistic estimate of what oil and gas royalties are going to be in 22-23, any realistic forecast is going to say that it's going to be pretty mod- it's going to be pretty modest amount of revenue. And so you're now really going to have to make some serious decisions because we're still running seven, eight billion dollar deficits. We've got to make some serious decisions about how to get that down to a much, much smaller number. Um, And again, no one's going to, this panel is not going to come out and say, we're going to see a whole lot of oil and gas revenue come 22, 23, so just relax. I think they're going to give you a really realistic number. In fact, it's going to be small, and so we've got some really hard choices to make. But even if it's not, right, even if we, we um, see the, 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 the rosy uh, forecast come, come to fruition, if we're balancing the budget off of, of a rebound in energy prices, we haven't really changed our, our practices here, have we? No, you're, you're still putting yourself, it's, a, it's what I've called in the past, a high-risk budgeting strategy to say, I'm going to fund health care and education and social supports on the basis of a revenue source I cannot rely on. This is just, why are we doing this? Why are we putting Albertans at risk rather than establishing a more stable revenue source or 
if you don't want to increase new revenues, then getting your spending under control so you can afford to pay for what it is that you're getting. We spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago with your colleague, Trevor Toome, and uh, he had prepared a report looking at some of those longer-term challenges that we face, that, that mm. balancing the budget, however we end up doing it, is, is really not the end of the process. It's barely even the end of the beginning, right? We, we've got some more longer-term challenges we really need to address here. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I was glad, I was heartened to hear that in the press conference, that in fact, part of the panel's duty is to not only make recommendations on how to balance the budget by 22-23, but also what steps should be taken to put the province on a long-term track towards fiscal sustainability. And what that means, that's code for saying what level of debt do we want the province to carry long-term and what should be our target moving, looking out 20, 30 years. Well, we'll see what they come up with. Uh, Professor Nebone, appreciate your input on this. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. You're welcome. All right. That is Ron Ebone, economist, director of economic and social policy research at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Uh, So two of his colleagues included in this uh, panel today, uh, Janice McKinnon, who's uh, at the School of Public Policy. Now she is the chair. And uh, Bev Dalby, who's a distinguished fellow and research director at the School of Public Policy. He's included as well. Uh, The other members of the panel, Mike Percy. You might remember uh, Mike Percy. He was an MLA. He... um, was part of the Liberals in the Lawrence Decor era, was the finance critic for the party. They went on to become the dean of the Alberta School of Business at the University of Alberta. In fact, was uh, chief of staff to former Premier Jim Prentice. Uh, Kim Henderson, uh, principal at Sprout Advising. Her previous roles include deputy minister to the premier, cabinet secretary, and head of public service in the province of B.C. was also deputy minister of finance in B.C., Dave Mowat, well, I think we all know Dave Mowat, former president and CEO of ATB Financial, and Jay Ramatar, who has held several different deputy minister postings here in Alberta, including Service Alberta, Solicitor General, uh, Public Safety, and Treasury Board. So that's their blue ribbon panel. Well, the topic of money laundering, it's certainly been a big issue in B.C., and maybe that's where a lot of it uh, is, is happening when we talk about money laundering in Canada. On the day we get a new report out from the City Howe Institute, uh, the B.C. government has released a, a second report on money laundering, in particular, finding that uh, a lot of money laundering in B.C. is happening via the luxury car sector. So maybe there's a, an opportunity here to take a step back and try to understand, well, what, what is money laundering why is it something that canadians should be concerned about why is it that we do such a terrible job of catching it and prosecuting it so the cd how policy paper released this week finds that canada is likely missing 99.9 percent of money laundering because of loose requirements and lenient penalties among western liberal democracies we are down there with the weakest countries According to the author of this paper, Kevin Como is a retired lawyer. He's a member of uh, Transparency International Canada's working group uh, on this issue and author of this piece, which you can find at uh, this report at cdhow.org. Kevin, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, Rob. All right. Well, how do, we, how do we define in this context then money laundering? Well, money laundering is a derivative crime. It's the process by which a person disguises the origin of illegally obtained proceeds so they appear to have originated from a legitimate source. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, yeah. 
Okay. So, for instance, if someone commits a crime, let's say, whether it's in Russia or Saudi Arabia or in Indonesia, whether it's, uh, you know, drug trafficking, human trafficking, uh, extortion by corrupt government officials, they can't spend that money freely because uh, they've got limited salaries and people will look and say, well, where did you get that $10 million money to buy that $10 million home? So they now, that money is actually a liability and it's called dirty money, right? It, it looks the same as any other piece of currency, but it's dirty money, so they have to hide it. So what they do is they send it to trusts and companies that they set up in these tax havens around the world, and then eventually they have to park it somewhere. And so they want to park it in a place that is a Western liberal democracy because we have a strong rule of law. As crazy as that sounds, it's because if they leave the, if they bring the money back into their home jurisdiction or buy a property with it, let's say real estate, they always run the risk that in that corrupt country, someone close to the power will confiscate the asset. So they're actually relying on the Western liberal democracies for our strong rule of law to protect that. And then they're looking for the weakest Western liberal democracy anti-money laundering rules, which Canada is right down at the weakest, so that they can send it into that country. Yet our strong rule of law protects it from arbitrary confiscation. It's a great gig. Well, it is. So what about Canada's current laws then make it so easy to launder money here? So you first have to realize that our banks are doing a terrific job. It's not the bank's fault per se. It's that the rules for the banks and financial institutions are actually pretty good. All the rest of the reporting entities in Canada, they're extremely lax and are not even keeping with the standards that has been set up by the world organization called FATF that sets the anti-money laundering standards. Canada has been out of... um, out of sync with those recommendations since 2012. And the, the list of ways in which um, Canada's laws are weak just go on and on. And, I mean, it, 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 particularly if you just talk about real estate, I mean, we allow companies, trusts, and nominees to purchase real estate without disclosing beneficial ownership. We allow just someone from a foreign country or in Canada to incorporate a company without even asking who's the shareholders of this company. We don't, so we don't do that. So someone from, you know, from Russia, China, Indonesia, all these corrupt countries, they can come to Canada, they can incorporate a company and anonymously, and they can use that corporation to buy real estate or some other luxury good like cars, etc. And also anonymously because we don't collect beneficial ownership for real estate or luxury goods. And so then they can, you know, sell that luxury profit, property for a profit, and it appears as though they, they made that money by in, through legitimate means. They, they did. So they can sell it for a profit, or with the case of real estate, often they're just parking it here. They want to leave it for years and years and years. So they, they, And the big thing is these money launderers, of course, never want to go into the banking system because that's where the tough anti-money launder rules are. So they don't rent out these places. They sit vacant because tenants will want to pay by check or they'll want to do a bank uh, transfer, and that would bring them into the banking system. So they don't mind just having those houses sit there for years and years because what they did is take their dirty money, which was a liability, 
and they turned it into a hard a- asset uh, that they can one day use. And when they do sell it out of Canada, which is considered a very clean jurisdiction of Western liberal democracy, it's free. It's, mm-hmm. it's The red lights don't go flashing, warning, warning through the bank system. So that is a huge, huge incentive for the money launderers from all around the world to be sending them to countries like Canada, Western liberal democracy with weak anti-money laundering rules. How do we go about trying to quantify then how much is, is going on under our noses here? Well, wow, that's a great question, Rob, because so if you go to have your listeners just go and, and Google FinTrack right now. And, you know, that's our that's our intelligence agency for money laundering. And if they go to FinTrack, they're going to say, pick your language, do so. And then on the very first page, it talks about money laundering. You click on money laundering and it says the estimated amount of global money laundering each year is between uh, in U.S. dollars. $590 billion and $1.5 trillion. That amount is from 1996. It's more than 20 years out of date. The true amount is around $5 trillion Canadian every year. So just from the very start, we're way behind. We've underestimated money laundering by more than 150%, the global amount. And then the amount coming into Canada, you can't estimate that exactly because it's an invisible crime. But you can estimate the magnitude of the problem. And I've done that. I've done it by looking at um, uh, uh, different ways to get the money into Canada, the, the percentage of Canada's economy compared to uh, other Western liberal democracies. And the estimate that I've come up with for the magnitude of money laundering is between $100 billion and $130 billion every single year coming into Canada, which means over the last 10 to 12 years, we have more than a trillion dollars of dirty money coming into this country. Well, yeah, that's that's a lot. It, it, do we lack, I mean, there, there are obviously people then who, who, who benefit through those transactions. Does it create a, a disincentive to fix the problem? Yeah, so what we have to do is realize how much harm it inflicts on Canadians and other people around the world. If you're a millennial, living in Toronto, Vancouver, um, to a lesser extent, Montreal, your chances of buying a house in the town or city that you grew up in is almost nil. That's for the first time in Canadian history. The second thing is the small businessmen in those communities where they have all those vacant homes owned by international uh, money launderers, they've hollowed out the economy. So there aren't people going to restaurants, there aren't people going to to shop for groceries, to go get their hair done, to go to the theater. That's killing the local small businessmen. They're hurting a lot. It's those people we have to think about. Sure, the real estate agents are getting, you know, very high commissions, etc. But Canada is much more than our real estate agents and their interests. It has to be about, you know, an entire generation of Canadians. It has to be about these small business owners that are struggling because we've hollowed out the economy by allowing uh, these foreign money launderers to come in. And then the biggest one of all is money laundering is part of the underlying crime. So think about it. We have these drug kingpins, these guys who are doing, um, they're doing things, not just drug trafficking, but human trafficking, massive corruption in these regimes. Part of that crime is coming to Canada. We are responsible 
for all the pain that it's inflicted on those people because we are helping them launder that money in this country. Yeah. As I mentioned at the outset, it appears as though the B.C. government is starting to take this problem more seriously, uh, that they have taken some steps. Like, for example, there's a land ownership uh, transparency law in B.C. Are we starting to see indications maybe of, of some steps in the right direction? Rob, you, you've hit the nail right on the head. So um, B.C. is doing a terrific job with the Landowners Transparency Act. It, it is excellent legislation. It's a public registry, which is what you need, a beneficial ownership. And it requires companies, trusts, uh, partnerships who are buying real estate when they to disclose who the beneficial owner is. So that's terrific. They also need to be saying, all companies, partnerships, trusts, we need to disclose that beneficial ownership for no matter what you buy. So so in the UK, for instance, they've got a public registry. It's of all companies. All companies have to say who the beneficial owner is. And that's not particularly onerous because you think about it, it's not saying anything about the financial operations of the company. It's not saying anything about the business operations. All we're doing is saying, hey, who owns this? We just want to make sure it's not Vladimir Putin and, and you know, the corrupt guys from Russia, from, from mm-hmm. China, from Saudi Arabia. That's what we're looking for. Well, much more at uh, cdhow.org. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank All you, right, Rob. Take care. Uh, Kevin Como, he's the uh, author of this report for the C.D. Howe Institute, also a member of Transparency International Canada's Working Group on Beneficial Ownership Transparency. That that lack of transparency seems to be a big, big part of the, pro- uh, the problem, rather. Right? The idea that uh, a- anyone can just create a corporation or trust, conceal who owns it, and buy luxury properties, luxury vehicles, uh, it's a pretty easy way to launder money. So maybe no surprise that so much of it is is taking place right under our noses and we're not even aware of it. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.